0: It's the only format we have for global decision-making of a global problem. And speaking from the perspective of the most vulnerable poor countries, if you take other forums, let's say the Security Council of the UN, let's take the G7, let's take the G20, we don't belong to any of them. They make decisions without inviting us. We only get invited once a year to the COP. And that's the only place that we have a seat at the table. Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference. And every second counts.
1: I want you to panic. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. From the pandemic
0: to climate change, going it alone is simply not an option. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have
2: ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Welcome back to the Accelerating Climate Solutions podcast. I'm Stefan Schurich from the Foundation's platform F20.
1: And I'm Ruth Richardson, former Executive Director of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Global climate commitments, are they having an impact or are they a load of political greenwashing? In the countdown to COP27 in Egypt, we check in on progress towards the 2021 COP commitments and ask the tough questions about whether all these international convenings are worth the paper they're written on. This podcast is about uncovering the hard topics at the heart of the climate crisis debate. Together, we get to the bottom of what's holding back solutions. In this episode, we turn a critical eye to the annual meeting that's meant to forge a global response to the climate emergency The world will be watching as government leaders meet this November in Egypt for COP27, the 27th Climate Change Conference of the United Nations Conference of the Parties. This year, these international climate talks take place in the shadow of war in Ukraine and as global energy and food prices continue to skyrocket. Climate chaos causes a humanitarian disaster every week, emissions are increasing, and temperatures are higher than ever. Time is running out, And yet the inspiring plan of the world's leaders is to have more meetings. You can understand those who say this doesn't quite capture the urgency and scale of the crisis
2: we're in. That's completely right, Rose. The most pressing goal of COP27, therefore, will be to get national governments to commit to ambitions and on financial pledges aligned with Paris Agreement targets. And we're going to talk about the fact that we don't want only commitments, but we really want to see actions. And I'm sure our guests will talk about that as well. Each country has its own climate action plan, as you know, commitments that are outlined in something called nationally determined contributions or NDCs for short. And the current NDC commitments made by national governments are inadequate, to put it mildly, to hold the world to the 2 degrees Celsius benchmark of global warming. So that, at the moment, puts all of us and the planet at risk.
1: So with that in mind, the questions that we want to ask today and hopefully find some answers to are, do global meetings to talk about climate action actually work? Is COP27 the best way to formulate the globally coordinated response we urgently need? If not, what's the alternative to have this discussion, we're joined by a brilliant mind, Dr. Salimul Hook, Director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development. Welcome, Salimul.
0: Thank you. Nice to be here. Salimul, it's
2: a great honor to have you at this podcast. Uh, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts after so many UN climate summits. But before we jump right into that discussion, we start every episode by asking our guests, one question, and always the same question. And it's actually become quite an interesting set of answers that we've heard so far. So the question to you, the first question to you then is, if you could press a button and change one thing, Salim, what would it be?
0: Well, the button I would uh, choose to press, and this is actually what I, I do as my day job, is to make every citizen on planet Earth aware of the scale of the climate problem that we are just at the beginning of. And unless we take our citizenship of planet Earth as our primary citizenship over that of our country or our city or the place that we live, we will not be able to do justice to tackling this global problem because it is unfortunately going to be bigger than the COVID-19 crisis we had for the last few years, and the Russia-Ukraine war that we have now combined. We haven't seen anything yet, and we are certainly not prepared. I wish we had this button. I know, I've heard
2: <laughs> a couple of answers, but that would be really a big game changer, putting that button and making people primarily citizenship Earths.
1: Yes, I was just going to say I love your answer and I have so many questions about how one does that. How do we actually encourage this idea of earthly citizenship and how do we actually make everybody aware? But before we do that, (laughs) um, I just want to take us back um, for our listeners um, some background from last year's COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. What were some of the key agreements made there? And more importantly, what's actually been implemented? So can you just help take us on a bit of a history lesson in terms of where we've come from?
0: So let me uh, start the history description uh, from the year 2015, now seven years ago, when we had the 21st Conference of Parties in Paris, France. And that is by far the highest achievement of the global community of nations coming together to agree to do something serious about tackling climate change. There were two major agreements. The first one, we all agreed, all the countries, no exceptions, all of them, agreed to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, which caused the problem, in order to keep global temperature rise well below 2 degrees, preferably below 1.5 degrees. And that 1.5 degree threshold was something that we, the most vulnerable developing countries, fought for and achieved. That was a major achievement in terms of an agreement. Since then, we haven't kept that agreement, but we do have an agreement. The second agreement that we did achieve was from the rich countries, a promise to deliver $100 billion, billion with a B, every year, starting from 2020 onwards, to help poorer countries both reduce their emissions of greenhouse gases and also prepare for the impacts of climate change by helping them adapt to the impacts of climate change. In the climate change jargon, we call the first mitigation, which is reducing emissions that cause the problem, and the second adaptation, which is preparing to deal with the the worst impacts that are likely to happen. Unfortunately, you know, 2020 uh, came and went, 2021 came and went, and we're now in 2022, and the 100 billion was not delivered in any of these years. They are now saying that they might deliver it by next year. So last year at COP26 in Glasgow, it was a review of where we were in terms of delivering the promises that we all made collectively in Paris. The Paris Agreement is the decision There's no more decisions to be made. There's just implementing the decisions that we made and reviewing how we are doing in implementing. And we're not doing well. And particularly on the reduction of greenhouse gases, this involves the phasing out of fossil fuels, particularly coal, which is the worst of the fossil fuels, and then petroleum and then natural gas. And so in Glasgow, there was an agreement to phase out coal as quickly as possible. And countries have all agreed to uh, get to what we call net zero. So the emissions of the country becomes uh, uh, equivalent to whatever uh, emission reduction that they are doing, absorbing carbon dioxide and and releasing carbon dioxide. So we have a net zero, different countries say by 2050, by 2030, and so on. This is a race to uh, uh, net zero going on at the moment. We're not Going fast enough, but we have decisions to go and do this. So there's no more decision making. There's just implementing decisions that have already been made. And and finally, on the money front, the the promises to deliver a hundred billion, as I said, did not uh, get delivered. Uh, we don't even know how much was delivered because there's no official count of it. But the givers, the rich countries, claim that they gave in the order of eighty billion. That's a questionable figure because they tend to double count a lot of other things that they were giving for as well. Uh, But what they did not disagree with is that the funding that they did give mostly went for mitigation and only a small part of it went for adaptation to help the most vulnerable communities. And that was something they acknowledged was wrong. They promised to double the adaptation funding very soon. And in Sharm el-Sheikh coming up in November in Egypt, in COP27, that will be a very big issue of how well are they delivering on promises that they repeated. These are old promises that were not kept, but repeated again in Glasgow, and we shall see whether they are actually going to keep them uh, or not. So the meetings are really to review progress. We don't have to make any more agreements. We just have to do what we said we would do. And uh, unfortunately, the only way, we don't have a super global government Uh, We only have the United Nations, where nearly 200 countries all belong. And we have to have collective decisions uh, on anything that is global in scope. And we do have the UN Framework Convention. That's a major achievement. We do have the Paris Agreement. That's a major achievement. But progress has not been as fast as we need it to be.
1: Salim, thank you so much. That was a perfect sort of history lesson for us and our listeners. Um, And we're going to want to dig in a little bit more uh, into COP27. But just can you maybe highlight a few of the things that you're particularly going to be looking for, given the context you provided, where it's a stock taking, it's a review, as opposed to new commitments, but in that stock taking in that review, what are sort of the top two or three things that you're really going to be looking for?
0: Sure. So let me, uh, before I do the stop take uh, uh, and the review, do uh, I will mention something new. And that something new comes from the most recent report of the scientists. There's a body of scientists called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, who are scientists from all over the world, who do periodic reviews of the scientific status of global warming or climate change. And every few years, they bring out a major report. They just published their sixth assessment report. In the last 30 years, they've done six of them. And the sixth assessment report is actually a game changer. It's the first time the scientific community has verified and said that climate change is already happening, not something that's going to happen in the future. It's already happening. We have crossed the threshold. We have raised global temperature above 1.1 degrees, some say 1.2 degrees, and that is having repercussions. That is causing impacts. Uh, if you recall, in the last month or so, we had a major flood in Pakistan. A third of Pakistan is still underwater. The flood waters have not receded yet. And in the last few days, we've had Hurricane Ian hit the coast of Florida and South Carolina in the US, causing enormous amounts of damage. Again, these events are natural. They didn't get caused by climate change, but they are unnatural in the size of the event. They are unprecedented in size and impacts. And so we now, and the the, the increase in size and magnitude and intensity and destruction is a function of the fact that we have raised global temperature already beyond one degree centigrade. And so, We have now entered what I call the era of impacts from climate change, leading to losses and damages from climate change. And this is a new era, because I mentioned earlier that we used to think of tackling climate change through mitigation, that's reducing emissions, They're still important, and adaptation, which is preparing for climate change. But once climate change happens and it hits you, then no amount of adaptation is going to be good enough. You're going to be affected. And so we now uh, have entered into this territory called loss and damage. And one of the demands that the developing countries made in Glasgow, but did not get, they're making again in Sharm el-Sheikh, is a new finance for the victims of losses and damages of climate change. This goes beyond the mitigation and adaptation finance. And there is a great reluctance from the rich countries to provide that finance because they feel it opens them up liability and compensation, which are taboo words. We are not allowed to invoke liability and compensation. What we have uh, is goodwill. All the countries, the polluting countries and the victim countries come around the table and we have to agree everything by consensus. And the victims claim, you know, that they need help from the polluters. If the polluters don't agree to do it, we can't make them do it. We shall see.
2: Salimul, thanks for these answers, and it's actually a very uh, good description to say that we're not only talking about mitigation anymore. We are in the midst of the climate crisis, obviously, and um, we're experiencing heavy weather extremes or um, very unusual weather extremes already, so it's not about mitigation anymore. You also said that we have this big decision of Paris, uh, which now goes back seven years, and now it's about Implementation and enforcing decisions and reviewing progress rather than making new promises. And I guess that's a very fair point and very important point. My question then, of course, is what is the rate limiting factor for implementing things? Is it politically still too cheap to not act or to not enforce those decisions taken on the UN level? Or what is the main reason why we are? making promises and more promises and finding new narratives and descriptions for what has been decided already rather than implementing those decisions into our own national
0: legislations? That's a very good question. And and really, there's no consensus answer. Everybody has their own answer to that question. I'll give you mine. My my answer is that the, the fossil fuel companies the coal, petroleum, and natural gas companies are some of the biggest companies in the whole world. These are companies like Shell, BP, Exxon, Chevron, Saudi Aramco. There's several dozen of them. They're not not huge numbers. They're only a limited number of companies who have known about the problem for the last 30 years, have decided that they make too much money from polluting the atmosphere and causing harm, that they will not do anything to stop it. And that they will do the opposite. They will sow misinformation, disinformation, and they will buy politicians, buy politicians. all right? And I'll give you a very stark example. They bought the previous president of the United States of America. Mr. Trump was funded by the coal industry in the United States to mount his campaign. When he was president, he mouthed the words, given to him by the coal industry in the United States. He didn't know what Paris Agreement was or climate change was, but he withdrew from the Paris Agreement because that's what they wanted him to do. And he's not the only government that is in the pocket of the fossil fuel companies. So the assumption that some countries are negotiating in good faith is wrong. They don't negotiate in good faith. They negotiate in bad faith. They negotiate something to simply get an agreement and then they go home and they don't care about fulfilling what they promised to do. Fortunately, in the United States, Mr. Trump lost the election uh, and he uh, uh, and Mr. Biden came in and he is now trying to rectify the United States's uh, uh, missing in action. But four years of the U.S. being missing in action has caused irreparable harm. You know, we weren't just in neutral. We went backwards. And so now the Russia-Ukraine war is also pushing us backwards. Europe is now trying to get more uh, uh, fossil fuels, not get wean themselves off fossil fuels. They could have weaned themselves off fossil fuels if they really invested in renewable energy in the last 10 years. They did a little bit, but nowhere near enough. Now they're wanting to do more. And so what I would call real politic of the uh, rich developed countries primarily, but also Big developing countries like China, India, Brazil as well, the politics of the the nation state, the people in the nation have different conflicting ideas and the vested interests are extremely powerful, extremely powerful. And uh, it's not going to be easy to uh, fight them. We have to fight them. We are going to have to fight them, but it's not going to be easy.
2: One question very briefly on the COP process, Salimul, if I may, I don't know if I should take any pride of the fact that I can say I was at COP1 and so were (laughs) you, I know that, (laughs) and I chose the outside position. So I was, you know, an environmental activist standing outside Mm -hmm. calling for action from the German government. And I know, you know, this was a COP where the hope was, of course, that the UN process would lead to bold decisions that then would be implemented in the national contexts. And then with Paris, they changed that strategy and said, oh, no, 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 we asked the national governments what their ideas and what their plans are and then just accumulate the effects of those plans. Um, And that is what we call the Paris Agreement. So it's actually built Mm -hmm. on national plans. But of course, governments can change every four or five years in the different countries. So probably those um, promises made in Paris are not really those promises of current governments. And I think that's one of the challenges. Still, I felt that the COPs have become extremely powerful. They really have become a climate momentum Maybe the most important climate momentum throughout the year, because they do not only negotiate um, in the UN kind of style, as we just heard, but they also uh, bring together the global group of scientists, experts, civil society representatives. So really, it really is a convening hub of the global climate movement, if you say, and that in itself has a massive positive effect. And there's a third effect that I've seen since COP1 up to now is it's those two weeks where media report about climate of all kinds. So it really has put a lot of progress in terms of awareness that people know about this issue and so on and so forth. Would you agree with that? So it's not, you know, we started with the question whether or not the COPs are worse at all, or Mm where is the effort at all? But I think, given the fact that it really is such a climate momentum now, even if the negotiations don't make that progress that we would like to see, it still is a very, very important climate event. Would you agree with that?
0: Absolutely. So let me uh, share with you my take. Uh, I happen to be one of the few people who's been to every single COP from COP1 in Berlin many years ago when you were there as well, uh, to COP26 uh, uh, last year in in Glasgow, and I hope to make it to COP27 again as well. Over the years, the cops have changed. What you have just described is a very good way of describing what they have become. They are no longer government officials, a few thousand officials sitting behind closed doors negotiating words and commas into the deep night hours in language that nobody understands. You know, the, the negotiating language is extremely uh, complicated, arcane, and non understandable by normal people. On the other hand, as you say, many thousands of people now go to the cops. So I go as an observer. I'm not a negotiator. I go as a scientist, as a, uh, an observer. I do side events. Others do their events. Lots and lots of events take place networking opportunities, the scientists, the young people, uh, the companies, organizations, parliamentarians, and many others. And uh, this has become a big jamboree, which in my view is a good thing. And as you say, that then draws the global attention for those two weeks to the event. And the media then tries to explain what is happening uh, to the global public And that is the opportunity to explain things uh, to the global public on where we are and how we are going. But let me add one other element to the previous question you asked of how do we move things forward. We move things forward and we are doing that by having coalitions of the willing, not by having consensus of everybody. That is the design flaw in the UN system. The UN system requires consensus by every single country for every single decision and it requires that this that consensus for a comma to be put in and they sometimes fight over a comma for hours and hours and hours and so that's no way to make progress because you end up with the lowest common denominator that everybody can agree to and some people can hold things up and they do hold things up all right so the consensus-based system is not up to the challenge of dealing with it. However, if countries have goodwill and other companies and other b- bodies uh, are interested in doing something, they can form coalitions of the willing. We do things together. And that is what you see nowadays in the COPs. It's not what's happening inside the negotiations that is interesting. You won't, you know, if you even if you get inside you won't know what the hell they're talking about until the very end when they tell you what they agreed. Uh, But the parallel meetings that take place of these coalitions is very, very important. And these are, to me, much, much more uh, effective in terms of implementing the Paris Agreement. And the way I would describe how to implement the Paris Agreement is that the agreement was achieved by governments, But implementing it does not require all governments to keep on agreeing on everything. Implementing it is in our hands. You and I can implement it. A company can implement it. A mayor of a town can implement it. A school, you know, can decide to implement it. Each and every one of us can decide to implement one element of the Paris Agreement that we are particularly, uh, you know, engaged in and want to do things with. And that comes back to my earlier point that every citizen of planet Earth needs to think of as a citizen of planet Earth. And the Paris Agreement tells us what to do. We can each of us do something and we need to start doing that and not depending on our leaders to do the right thing.
1: Salim, a a really strong theme in our conversation today that is sort of more implicit, and I want to make it explicit and pull it up, is the issue of the most vulnerable uh, countries, the most vulnerable people, and climate justice, essentially. Can you just let us know, our listeners know a little bit more about your take on climate justice and how that fits into the whole picture?
0: Sure. So let me describe a little bit more about where I come from in this uh, bigger uh, global debate. So my day job, so the co- the conference of parties, the COPs we're talking about are two weeks out of 52 weeks of the year. All right. And as I said, the last uh, 26 years, I've, been, I've spent those two weeks at the COP. But the other 50 weeks, I'm based in Bangladesh in Dhaka. I'm a professor in a university. I teach students. We have master's students studying climate change and development. And my, my day job, my research, is on helping the most vulnerable communities in the most vulnerable countries, not just my country, Bangladesh, but I work in a large number of other developing countries. that They're called the least developed countries, the most vulnerable countries building their knowledge and capacity to prepare themselves for the impacts of climate change, because they are going to be the first ones uh, to be hit. And as I said, they are already being hit. Now, I mentioned also that this is now no longer a natural series of events, but has already become an unnatural series of events which are caused by human beings. And so to put it in its starkest terms... The problem is one created by rich people all over the world, rich people also in poor countries, but rich people in rich countries primarily, because of their lifestyle and the pollution that they cause, the carbon footprints that they have, the emissions that they cause, that are affecting the poorest people on the planet who also have a carbon footprint, but a tiny carbon footprint compared to the big polluters. And so the notion of climate justice is that this is wrong. The polluters, the rich cause the pollution, it harms the poor, that's wrong. You know, any religion you belong to will say that's immoral. That's not correct. The Pope has said that this is not correct. It's wrong. It's an injustice. So I actually prefer to use the term climate injustice rather than climate justice. The word justice seems like an unreachable ideal, But the word injustice describes the phenomenon that we see right now, and it's wrong, and we need to do something. So every single one of us, if we have any moral fiber from our religious teachings, or even if we're an atheist, we should say it's wrong, and we should do something to correct the wrong. Every single one of us. And to me, that's what drives me. Uh, I go to the cops year after year and I fail and come back year after year, but I'm not giving up. I am going to keep on going because that's what drives me.
2: And that brings me to the question then, of course, once again, to the role of the cops. Obviously, it is a place where this injustice, this climate injustice also has been facing expression and where you can actually see this injustice, where... Countries are just sitting in the same row and are basically representing a most vulnerable country and an industrialized nation and they're just sitting next to each other and they both have one vote. Mm-hmm. so it is a place where this injustice can become public in a way or can become a subject of a broader discussion, so at least that's that's happening but again, after those um, almost 30 years of climate summit is the format? Still working?
0: My own view is that uh, we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's the only format we have for global decision making of a global problem. And speaking from the perspective of the most vulnerable poor countries, if you take other forums, let's say the Security Council of the UN, let's take the G7, let's take the G20, we don't belong to any of them. They make decisions without inviting us. All right. We only get invited once a year to the COP. And that's the only place that we have a seat at the table. It's an unequal seat. Right. We At least we say right. something. They may not listen to what we have to say, but we get to say it. And yeah. sometimes when we do it properly and we get lots of allies and we all speak with one voice, we sometimes make the, the rich and the powerful change their mind. And I'll give you an example of the Paris Agreement where we inserted the, the temperature goal of 1.5. Yes. All of them did not want it. We made them accept it, all right? We shame them into putting it in. Uh, and so, you know, occasionally we have a victory, not, not every time, uh, but it's the only place where we have a voice and we cannot give up that voice. We need to be there. We need to use it to the extent that it is possible uh, to make it a fair system. It's a very unfair system. It's an unlevel playing field, but at least we are on that field and we have a chance to play the game with the big boys.
1: I wanted to just build on this idea of a more sort of comprehensive holistic look at kind of community and impacts and sort of pull up question around the systems that we're entrenched in. So Salim, you and I were both part of the food systems summit And we kept emphasizing the system of the food system. (laughs) So in a similar way around COP and climate change, how do we really encourage a more holistic understanding and more holistic responses that go beyond siloed approaches and really look at issues of equity, of health, of ecological integrity, and provide a more comprehensive view and therefore better decisions? Any thoughts on that?
0: Absolutely right, Ruth. So you remember our, our struggles uh, to do that in, in the run-up to the food system uh, summit uh, a year or two ago. But I think, you know, we we did a good thing. We started the conversations and I think we got a lot of uh, positive feedback and reaction and willingness to engage. So I take three dimensions of what we did and, and uh, we'll build on them. The first one was engaging with a much, much wider constituency than just the governments. You remember the Food system Summit was not just governments coming together. They had already made their decisions in the SDGs. Mm-hmm. And we were asked, you know, the five action track uh, chairs and co-chairs, uh, we were asked to consult everybody else. So we talked to business, we talked to big business, small business, uh, women's groups, indigenous groups, youth groups, all over the world. And that was a very valuable exercise in my view. It was participatory. It wasn't ideal. Not everybody on planet Earth participated, but a large number of different groups did. And they were able to contribute and they were able to come up with ideas to take forward. And the major idea that came out of the summit wasn't a single agreement. It was the system's approach. It was that we cannot do things on our own. The system, as it is, is too siloed and unconnected with each other. And, you know, the... Coronavirus uh, pandemic has made that clear as well. So we need we need the global system and national systems to be far more uh, what I call uh, whole of society approaches, hmm. not just approaches by government or one part of government or the business community or uh, 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 academic community. We all need to be working together and be able to deal with these new problems. Sometimes they're called the nexus problems. It's not just climate change. It's biodiversity. It's not just biodiversity. It's food systems and so on and so forth. So they're all connected with each other. And uh, we need a much more holistic uh, uh, framing of the issues and then a holistic approach to tackling them and an involvement of a whole of society approach. And that takes me back to my original comment of each of us needs to be thinking of ourselves as a planetary citizen tackling a planetary problem from the location where I'm sitting. But it's a planetary problem. It's not a problem of Bangladesh and Dhaka alone. It's a problem of the whole world. And I'm a a global citizen and I'm going to do what I can as a global citizen and link up with global citizens like yourselves across the world and see whether we can do something together.
1: Well, the question that's just burning for me is going back to if you had a button to press, what would you change? And, and you very eloquently said that you would make every citizen aware of their global citizenship. And my question is simply, how? How does one do that? So I have a, a solution. I have an answer to that.
0: My answer to that is don't put all your eggs in looking at the annual jamboree called the COP. Every Friday, all over the world, school children are coming out of school and going on strike. It's called the Fridays for Future. They are emulating and have been inspired by the young Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg, who did it herself. She just took a placard and sat in front of the, the Swedish parliament every Friday on her own. And she has become an inspiration for young kids all over the world. I can tell you in Bangladesh, millions of kids come out all over the country every Friday. They come out and they demonstrate and they organize and they uh, have lobbying and advocacy on their own governments, on global governments. The Fridays for future, every Friday, school children are the future, not the leaders who are going to come to Sharm El Sheikh in November. They will come, they will make speeches, they will get global attention, they will make promises and they will go home and not Keep those promises. But school children are the future. They are the ones that we should follow. So follow them. Beautiful.
1: Yeah, to try to summarize, I have eight really quick points and Salimul, I hope this reflects um, you know, what what you um have offered and what I I have taken out of the conversation anyway. Number one, a whole lot of governments made a whole lot of promises. Number two, they haven't kept them. Number three, We have a new IPCC report that is a game changer in that it says unequivocally that we're in climate change now. And number four, that we're especially looking at a situation of loss and damages. And this is incredibly critical, especially related to vulnerable communities, vulnerable peoples and climate injustice, as you point out. Number five, One of the reasons we aren't making the progress we need to make is that there are very powerful vested interests. They are not negotiating in good faith, and we are going to have to fight those vested interests. Number six, COP is a really important forum to bring attention to the issues, to encourage participation, to hold government's account as a media moment for a whole lot of reasons. Number seven, But it's not just about the cops and it's not just about the governments. It's about coalitions of the willing and having the implementation be in all of our hands, a whole society approach. Which brings me then to my final point, number eight, that we really need to make aware all people on this planet that they are planetary citizens and that they have the power, especially the youth, and everybody should be encouraged to strike on Friday and march with our future leaders. Excellent. Wonderful. <laughs> Great. I, I'm, I'm glad. glad. <laughs> well done. Good job. <laughs> I'm glad I got that right. <laughs> Tremendous,
0: um, so so job. Thank you.
1: <laughs> those are the key points that stood out um, to me. And make sure you tune into the next episode of Accelerating Climate <sighs> Solutions. Yeah, and also from my uh, many, many thanks
2: um, to our guests and many thanks, of course, to our audience to listen. I think it was a fantastic discussion. We'd love to hear from your dear listeners. What is your main takeaway? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, And we'd love to continue the conversation online. So follow us on Twitter and on LinkedIn. We are at F20 Platform, and you can find the Global Alliance for the Future of Food on Twitter at futureoffood.org. Once again, I'm Stefan Schurig.
1: And I'm Ruth Richardson. Thanks for joining us.